Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and I am so excited, as always, to bring you today's episode with Ashley Van Houten, who you might know as the Muscle Maven on social media. In this episode, Ashley and I are going to talk about everything from eating a carnivore diet, the importance of lifting heavy weights to organ meats. And I actually wanted to open up today's intro with a little chat about organ meats, which we will be exploring a lot in coming weeks. And this has been one of the biggest changes that I have made to my diet over the years. So I started Western Daughters Butcher Shop 10 years ago and transitioned from a vegetarian into a very animal-based diet about Oh, 13 years ago. And organ meats have been a really important staple for me. And I've also noticed what an important staple they are for our customers at Western Daughters. We actually sell out of organ meats almost every week. For those of you that shop at Western Daughters, thank you. Thank you for nourishing your bodies. And this is a nutritional powerhouse. I think that there's a lot of chatter about superfoods and we often look to, you know, these different berries or these different nuts. But when I think of a superfood, what I think about is really finding the most nutrient-dense foods that are packing the biggest bang in the smallest amount and that are bringing me things that I might not find in my diet otherwise. And if that is the criteria for organ for for nutrient density and for superfoods, then organ meats really exemplify this. And so when we're looking at organ meats, I want to just say first that generally when you look at a nutrition profile of any given food, it's going to show you the RDA. Well, what does that stand for? So RDA stands for the recommended daily amount. And usually this is what it would mean for a 25-year-old active male. And the RDA is the minimum amount of nutrition that we need in a day without going into a deficit. That is the minimum amount emphasis on minimum. And so when I'm thinking about nutrient density, true nutrient density, I want to see that there are vitamins and especially minerals that I'm not getting anywhere else in my diet. And this is where I think organ meats really come into play. With liver, we're seeing over 500% our RDA for vitamin A, which we're not going to find in many places in our diet, especially in that amount. We are going to find over 2,000% of the RDA for thiamine. We are going to find a decent amount of niacin, all of your B vitamins. But when we get into minerals, this is where I think there's some real importance. And 
Minerals, as we're going to be exploring in some future episodes this month, are upcycled through the food chain. And so minerals start in a relationship between plant and fungi in the soil in this really elegant exchange where there are tiny miners within the soil that are breaking away minerals from rocks and exchanging them for oftentimes things like carbon at the root of the plant. And then these minerals are being uptaken by the plant and then they are being that plant is being eaten by the animal, which is then soaring them in all of their tissues, all of their organ meats, and then we're eating them. And so our soil health is really paramount to our mineral status. And this means that with declining soil health over the years, oftentimes there are a lot of minerals that are missing in our soils and we have become increasingly more mineral deficient. And we need these trace minerals, things like zinc, copper, selenium, magnesium, manganese, for our bodies to function optimally. And I really believe that organ meats are a big part of this equation of remineralizing our bodies. And as you'll see in this episode, Ashley and I also dive into the world of pregnancy and preconception, which, you know, if you want to eat a diet for preconception where you're preparing your body to give all it has because your body is going to preferentially give everything to that baby, in which case you're going to need some minerals here for yourself. And recently listened to a podcast, and we're actually going to have this guest on, where he talked about the transfer of copper during the third trimester of pregnancy. And it is most of your storage copper. But most of us, because soils are depleted in copper, don't have the amount of storage copper that is needed. And so Liver has 488% of your RDA of copper. Uh, Kidneys are going to have 200% of your RDA of selenium. They're going to have all this good stuff. And ancestrally and in hunter-gatherer communities throughout the world, organ meats are actually usually preferentially given to elders and to pregnant and women of childbearing age. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom within that because these are the people that are in most need of this nutrient density. I also want to mention that in the 1970s, the average American was consuming about 50 grams of organ meat per week. Today, the average American, right? This is averaged across all of it eats about five grams of organ meat per week. And I actually think that is probably being a little bit generous. And in that time, since the 1970s, we've seen a precipitous decline in our health, which I believe is deeply multifactorial. There is no one single thing that we can point to. But I do think that we have forsaken some of the more nutrient-rich superfoods in our diet for more processed versions. Come home to organ meats. I I can't recommend this enough. It's such a beautiful exploration. And I think what Ashley is doing is making these incredibly accessible and beautiful recipes, everything from appetizers to dishes to desserts, and encouraging you to explore these beautiful ingredients in ways that really highlight the ingredients. Now, 
With that being said, one of the things that has been most important to me during my journey as a butcher is that we're never shaming people for the way they eat meat. I don't know if you've ever been to a butcher shop where the butcher suggests that you have to eat everything rare or you've ever felt shame in a setting around eating meat. And I think that this is something I really want to overcome. There's no shame in enjoying your food how you enjoy it. And so if you do not enjoy organ meats, it is okay to hide them. And hoping at the time of this podcast, I'll have a recipe drop with one of my favorite ways to hide organ meats which I eat every morning for breakfast. And so hopefully that will be around. We'll get a link to that in the show notes. And I'm just really excited for you to hear from Ashley. I think that as the muscle maven, she is doing so much good with her foot in two different worlds. And one is the world of building muscle, which is incredibly important as we age, which you'll hear in this podcast. And the other is in getting people to eat muscles. And we had her partner and co-conspirator on her latest cookbook, Carnivore-ish, which if you're watching on YouTube, you can see right here behind me on, uh, on an earlier episode, and that'll be linked in the show notes as well. Beth Lipton is a powerhouse of a recipe developer and just a huge advocate of meat, which we love around here. I cannot wait for you to hear the nutrient density in this episode, right? That's the other thing that I want out of this podcast is to have these really nutrient-dense episodes that are just chock full of information and wisdom. And so I, I hope that you find that here. Ashley has a beautiful podcast herself, which is actually just transferring over to Muscle Science for Women. And... There is one of my dogs clawing at the door, so I apologize for that. And Muscle Science for Women is Ashley Van Houten and Rachel Gregory. And I think that this is going to be a great podcast. And I know that for those of us that are really looking to build strength as women, there aren't always a lot of role models around. And Ashley is definitely one of those. As you may or may not know, here on this podcast, if you leave a review on Apple Podcasts and you just send me a quick note with a snapshot of the review, I send you a little note in the mail. And this is a way that I am attempting to connect with all of the listeners of this show. Also, reviews are a big part of how we build our podcast here at the Groundwork Podcast. And so I would would love for you to leave a review or share this episode if it resonated with you. I'm going to read our most recent review. Uh, this is from C. Havstad, and boy, do I appreciate this 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 review. Where nuance and curiosity live, Kate's inquisitive mind and endearing way of framing her thoughts makes her podcast a real treat to dive into. Each episode so far has left me feeling heartened and armed with more knowledge than before listening in. Bravo, a really interesting collection of interviewees, and Kate is a graceful interviewer. Well, C. Havstad, I deeply appreciate that review, and you hit on something that's so important to me, which is this value of curiosity, and that is the value that guides the direction of this podcast. And so I love when people can feel that coming through the mic. And thank you for leaving that review. And I'll throw a note in the mail for you. That being said, if you enjoyed this episode, 
leave a review, share it with a friend, and without further ado, the amazing Ashley Van Houten. So I actually had this idea of starting. So I know that you go by the muscle maven on social media and I was curious which muscle came first here. You work in the meat and carnivore-ish and cooking, but you also have this big component that's about strength training. And so I love the duality of these, these two muscles. And I was wondering which came first. That's a good question. I've never been asked that before. I mean, I actually think like body muscles came first before the food component. And I think that's probably a common theme for a lot of people who get into the fitness and wellness world, because maybe you are into sports or into like athletics in some way. And a lot of us, I mean, I don't think I'm just speaking for myself. We don't really put the attention into nutrition and food until we almost like have to, you know, like you're in your teens and early twenties, we can get away with a lot more than as we get older. And so while I, looking back, I always had a sort of protein forward approach and I always loved that. I didn't have the, um, I think the, the issues that a lot of women have where we're kind of being told how to eat and that ends up being low protein. We can dive into that, but definitely I grew up always being fascinated by human performance and what people's bodies were capable of. And I loved kind of watching other people pursue incredible athletic feats. And so I, in my own humble way, started getting into that myself with strength training and you know, I tried things like powerlifting and jujitsu and all kinds of different things. And, you know, I'm not like incredibly athletically gifted. I just really enjoy the process of learning about muscles and strength and what we can do. And so then with that, like, as I said, as I kind of got older and like started realizing that nutrition plays a massive part of performance, that's what kind of brought me into the other side of it. I love that. And I think that it's, it's so beautiful to kind of see that evolution and how your work marries both of these concepts and brings in this conversation. That's going to be a big part of what I have to ask you about is, is where women rate on this. But before we get into that, you know, I got this wonderful chance to talk to Beth Lipton, who was the co-author for your latest book, Carnivore Ish. But I have been really familiar with It Takes Guts for a while because at the butcher shop as people come in and they are looking for ways to incorporate organ meats into their diet. It is such a beautiful entryway for talking Mm. about that. And so I'd love to just have you talk a little bit just to set the scene about these two books and how that really brought in this element of nutrition into the, Mm -hmm. the strength training that you had already been participating in and in that world. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for your support because, you know, when I wrote It Takes Guts, and I'm really not saying this to be cute, but I was like, I don't know who's going to buy this. I know it's very niche. I knew that there were people (laughs) out there who were interested in nose to tail and eating organs and things like that. But when I initially came up with the idea of the book, I was like, I might self-publish this and I might get a couple of my friends, like guilt them into buying it. And that'll be it, you know? And I think that ultimately my sort of passion was kind of rubbing off on other people and people were interested in what I was interested in. And, you know, you always find your, your group and there's something out there for everybody. And I, I just found a pretty passionate group of people who were interested in the same things I was. So it ended up working out, but I didn't necessarily think it would. So I appreciate it when people are like, I actually found this useful. 
Um, <laughs> it's incredibly yeah. useful. I mean, the amount of, we can't keep organ meats in the shop. We sell out every week. Nice. It's really difficult for us to even have enough. I'm trying to find more. And so nice. this is a part of, I think what's happening in this sort of collective consciousness that we are being drawn into more nutrient dense, more mineral dense and mm-hmm. bioavailable forms of those minerals in our diets. Mm-hmm. And so I think you really, you really hit on the pulse of what was happening with both books. Yeah, I I appreciate that. And Beth, of course, is amazing. She's the best. That's great. Um, I could not have... She's the best. I couldn't have asked for a better co-author because she's so knowledgeable. And, you know, I'm sure everybody listening has, you know, you hear horror stories about like working or going into business with a friend and like all the ways that can go wrong. And it was just the best process ever writing this book with her. So, but really, I mean, so essentially just to kind of do it quickly, because I could talk forever, you'll have to rein me in. It takes guts. I wrote at the beginning of the pandemic after years really of my own education around ancestral health and sort of a primal ancestral background in nutrition and understanding that the best way to eat for most people is to eat unprocessed food, eat food that our bodies recognize, eat the foods that our bodies are evolved to use and thrive, right? Yeah. And within that, of course, you can get really detailed and, you know, your perfect plate is going to look different than mine because maybe we have different goals or sensitivities or preferences or whatever, but we don't have to overcomplicate it starting out. Generally speaking, the vast majority of people, you don't have to worry about fasting or keto or this or that. You just try to eat real food that you enjoy, that your body tolerates and and uses, you know? And as I continued to learn about that side of it, and I started to dive more into the sustainability, the ethics, the making the most use of of what we have and all of that stuff and the nutrient density stuff, like you were saying, I'm like, okay, so this is where organ meats come in because anybody really who eats meat probably knows whether you want to go that route or not, that organ meats are the most nutrient dense part of the animal you're already eating. It's just the fact. Like before we had Google or books to tell us what to do and people were just hunting and and harvesting their own food, we inherently knew that organs were the kind of prize cuts. That's where we got the most nutrition. Absolutely. Right. And so for a lot of reasons that has maybe fallen out of favor in the mainstream, but I wanted to explore it and I wanted to find ways that it could be enjoyable. It could be less scary, less intimidating. And as somebody who does not have formal like cooking background, I'm not a chef and I never, I didn't even really grow up with like a real interest in cooking and and making food. Honestly, I've always loved eating it, but that was about as far as it went. And so I figured like, if I could kind of get into this and, and find some solutions and make it enjoyable, like really, truly anybody could. And I started playing around with it a little bit and I would like post some stuff on social media. And a lot of people would be like, what? are you doing? That's gross. But then some people will be like, Hey, what are you doing? I'm like kind of into Mm -hmm. it. And I was like, okay, so maybe there is an audience here and maybe I should start exploring this. And that's basically how it takes guts came along, which is, it's really sort of like an exploration for everybody, like from the ground up, people who have no experience, what organ meats are, why they're beneficial and how they've been used throughout history across all different cultures, how you can source them, how you can prep them, all of the different ways, again, historically that they have been cooked and presented and then a bunch of recipes. And some of them are 
I guess, a little bit involved, but for the most part, they're really quite simple and quite accessible. They I really think. are. Because again, I can't make complicated stuff. Like I'm not a chef. <laughs> so if I can't do it, I'm not going to put it in the book. Right. So it was a really, really fun and rewarding process because I had to overcome intimidation and I had to overcome even some squeamishness. I'm not a particularly squeamish person, but you know, there are a couple of times that I was I don't know, prepping tongue for the first time or buying brain or making recipes with blood. And I was like, all right, this is something different. And every time that I was able to kind of go outside my comfort zone and try something and enjoy it, it was just super, super rewarding. And I want that for other people who buy the book and who try this stuff because we shouldn't have to, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole, but like we do it while... Delicious food is great and it's fun to enjoy pleasurable foods. Not every food needs to taste like chocolate cake. We're adults, like let's whatever, be real. But on the flip side, I don't want people to think, okay, liver is good for me. I should eat it. I'm just going to choke it down. I'm just going to get through this. You don't have to. There are a lot of different ways you can prep organ meats, that you can enjoy it, that you can even hide it if you want to. You can make it subtle and it can really be a nutrient boost to your diet. So I wanted people to just kind of have an open mind and not be, not be so scared and not be so sort of negative about it and just kind of think like, let's use this as an experiment and as an adventure and see what I can learn and and see how I can enjoy it. And that's what I did. I actually think one of the things that you do so beautifully in both books is come at it from this sense of building a foundation, of helping people learn how to navigate their kitchen, everything from the tools that they're going to need to the cooking oils and the pantry items that they might stock to just how to think about cooking. And I think that you foster a sense of building agency for people Mm. within both books, both the agency to cook these foods that they might be unfamiliar with, but also the agency to maybe begin to go off script in the future with these sort of ideas. And so in a lot of ways, I think people that are not classically trained chefs come at this from an even better perspective of really helping everyday people get into the kitchen, cook food and nourish their bodies. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest humps that we have to get over when we jump into this world of really wanting that deep nourishment, wanting to find these trace minerals that aren't really available anywhere, but in organ meats Mm -hmm. and to just find this nutrient density is to find a sense of ease. That's also, and you do a really good job at this too, shame free. Like Mm. let's celebrate organs. Let's celebrate that, but we can also hide it and we can tuck it away mm-hmm. in everything from, you know, ground beef mixes to yeah. desserts. Absolutely. And I love that you, you mentioned that because I do think that there's so much judgment or even just perceived judgment these days around food. And maybe it's always been there, but with social media, it's more obvious. It just seems like there's so much of this like black and white, like you have to pick a side, you have to choose a path. And if you stray from it, you're terrible. And if you, you know, this other side that doesn't like the way you do it, so then you're stupid or you're bad or you're so much dogma, whatever. There's so much dogma. And 
I get, I understand people's tendency to want to join a group of like-minded people. There's a lot of comfort. There's a lot of pleasure that can be had there. And I understand that when people find new ways of being that work for them, they want to share it with everyone and they want to convince people. And I even felt this way sort of earlier on in my career where I wanted to convince people like you've got to lift weights and you've got to eat more meat and like all of this stuff. And I just, I've learned, I guess, like with age comes wisdom and like maybe a little (laughs) bit more patience or whatever, that that's just not the way psychology works. Like you just, you can't change people's minds by telling them they're wrong, telling them they're stupid and telling them that there's no like leeway for their own personal preferences and interests. You have to meet people where they are. And you also, right. And I find that like living by example also is the way to do it. So even in my own personal circle of like friends and family who maybe are struggling or who have come to me with questions in the past, when I have said, okay, here's how you should do it. It, I mean, it never works. They never do it. Right. Instead, it's like, I wait for them to ask me specific questions and I give them advice rather than telling them what to do. And I also show them through my behavior. Like, this is what I have found works for me. This is why I, you know, have been enjoying robust health and how this is how I enjoy my life and how I enjoy how I eat and move and and live in the world. Eventually they will come to me and, and whatever. And if they don't, they don't and like finding some peace with that. But I think that this aggressive approach that so many people on every side, we're talking plant-based carnivore, everything in between, it just doesn't work. You're, You're preaching to your own choir and maybe that feels good, but you're not actually maybe creating change in the way you, you hope or think that you are, you know? You hit on something that I've been thinking a lot about lately across a, a lot of different disciplines, which is how do we build bridges instead of deepening divides? And I think yes. you see this so much in the meat eating community and the plant-based community is there's vitriol for the other side instead of leading by example and just leading by your own curiosity that you're interested in all of these different things and how they interact with your biology and your physiology and you're wanting to strengthen your health and people can see, I mean, you just glow with health and you, people can just, you're, you're glowing. Uh, <laughs> even, even with this lack of sleep that I'm experiencing these days, I got a kid, you know, I do what I can, but we're none of us perfect. Yeah. But you, you set this great example and I, I really agree with you that there's just this opportunity to build bridges and to just provide education, to provide a different perspective without having to push an agenda or to align with dietary or any dogma in this case. And just negativity, just negativity. Like yes. we all know there's more than enough negativity in the world these days. Yes. And especially so when you're looking online, right? Like it's less so in the world when you're actually interacting with people. So maybe try to try to remember that. Try to remember that like, are you actually trying to help people? Are you trying to make people feel better or are you trying to prove a point and be right and feel smarter than other people? I don't know. And some of it's just the, the letting go, right? That knowing that probably you aren't going to convince everybody. Like I certainly didn't write these books to change vegans minds. I'm writing this book for people who are interested, who are finding that whatever is they're doing right now isn't working and they want to try something different. Just meat eaters who are looking for some inspiration or some new ideas. I mean, that's it. It's just letting go, like putting the information out there and 
what, however people pick it up is how they're going to do it. And you don't really have any control over that. No, I love that. I love that thought. And I think, you know, owning a butcher shop the past decade, it has never been my goal to convert everybody. It's just been to build a space where people can come and they can learn Mm. and they can interact and they can walk away and see how they feel, but not to, not to push. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. So I think that's so great. And it it kind of dovetails into something I wanted to talk to you about. And it's funny that this came up as I was kind of going over your work and I was rereading It Takes Guts and Carnivore-ish. I had this big question around how you frame this for women. And I think that throughout my tenure as a butcher, I've been asked the question, how does it feel to be a woman in a male-dominated industry? A lot. And I really disliked getting that question for a long time. And I don't have a great answer for it. I didn't want to talk about it. Why does it matter? But over the last couple of years, I've really come around to this idea that we have to bring that into the conversation that we have to honor these different cycles, this hormonal outlay and physiology of women, and also to look at the way that women are marketed to and may not feel welcome within this meat space. And I think you straddle a space where there are two spaces where there aren't a lot of women, which is in strength training and in this, you know, we're both in this meat world. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of want to open up that conversation around how we're talking to women about food and what it means to be a a woman in food and exercise. Yes. I I mean, I love the question and I totally understand your reaction at times of being like, really? Like, do I have to answer this question? Can I just do my job? And, you know, I totally get it. And I think that it can be exhausting, but I think that one of the reasons that we may have this reaction to that question or the topic is because so often when we we have a conversation around stuff for women. It's like, has this connotation of like, we're making it like, it's like this, this side bar or this like less important. It's like made less somehow because it's for women, you know, because we're always kind of like the other, the afterthought, like, you know, we're the sort of hormonally weird group and we're like emotional and that has to be a part of it. And like, there's all this stuff that makes it seem like stuff for women is not as good. Yes. Um, yeah. It's and the pink so, tax. It's kind of the, the pink razor tax there idea. That's it. And so it's funny because I, I literally just posted about this on social media because one of the, you know, my big passions is this muscle science for women, which is a strength program that I created with uh, my friend and partner, Rachel Gregory. She's also amazing. That is really, it's a, it's a holistic strength training program that incorporates all elements of what it takes to be a healthy, resilient, strong person, which is not just giving you a training program. That's part of it, but there's nutrition, there's recovery, there's uh, discussions on our physiological and hormonal differences and how that can impact training. There's a big discussion about fitness culture and how that impacts the decisions that women make around eating and working out because you can't, you can't not talk about that if you want to really dive into this process. And so what I was saying in this post is that instead of pretending that there are no differences, which is what women, I think we felt like we've had to do for a long time because no one either talked about it, knew about it, wanted to talk about it. It was like, who cares? Just like follow the dude stuff and try your best. Instead of ignoring it, uh, we just have to we have to forge ahead. We have to talk about it, talk about it in a way that conveys equal respect because we are different. Admitting that we're different 
doesn't mean we're weaker or worse or less than. It just means that we have some physical realities as well as cultural realities that impact how we're going to train, how we're going to eat our purchasing decisions, all of these things. And by ignoring them, we're not, we're not helping ourselves. We're not helping men. We're not helping women, whatever. So starting to have these conversations in a fact and science backed way is important. So when it comes to the food side of it, that is another area like we were talking where I've in the past, I felt this really strong urge to just like metaphorically shake women and be like, just stop listening to the stupid marketing that tells you you need to eat low calorie and low fat and yes. plant-based. And that's what's appropriate for women. And this then you like eating. Yes. But you see the marketing environment that we grow up in where it's just pictures of skinny women laughing, eating a low fat yogurt. And you're like, if you see that enough times, you will start to internalize that as like, that is appropriate. And even just recently, like some people listening to this podcast may think like, okay, you're overdoing it. Like it's not, it's not that bad. The marketing, it is that bad. Like even in the last few months, I have been paying attention to things like mother's day, father's day, you know, Mm -hmm. you get all these like gift lists online. Like here's what to get the man or the woman in your life. And I'm paying attention to these things because I'm a new mom and you know, whatever I'm looking at it. And Father's Day, buy this for the man, for the father in your life. There's beef jerky subscriptions. Mm-hmm. There's barbecues. Yep. There's grills, you know, grill culture. That's it. And women, you don't see any of it. And it's like, that's, it's subtle. And so you might think, well, that's not that big a deal, is it? But when that's the kind of marketing that is perpetuated over and over again, that books about meat, information about protein, um, ways to cook, are either masculine or feminine, that starts to have an impact on how women eat and what they think is okay to eat. And that is important when it means that a massively important nutrient-dense part of our food system is left out in a lot of women's diets. That has a massive repercussion on our hormonal health, our reproductive health, our overall health, our ability to build muscle and look the way we want to look, feel the way we want to feel. So it is that important. And these little things add up when it creates a culture where women feel like they have to restrict their food, not eat the things that they're actually craving. And the impact that that has on their health is significant. And I think we're, I think we're seeing that in the health outlay of women that we're seeing one in three women have fertility issues that we're seeing Mm. autoimmune disorders in higher rates in women. And Mm. And I think that the female population is also more susceptible in a health span model, Mm -hmm. right? Like how we're, how we're healthy into later years where sarcopenia and osteoporosis Mm -hmm. are going to be more likely to affect women. And that is a really important aspect of having these conversations of what it means to have a nutritional deficit, both in childbearing and post-menopausal years. Uh, huge. There was actually something I caught rereading the beginning of Carnivore-ish this weekend was that women are as much as 85% of the consumer market. And so, so much huge. is marketed to us. And I do think that you have an excellent point that this really changes the way that we interpret internalize what we're, and this is in big quotes, supposed to be doing. And I know at the butcher shop, one of the things I've actually been, it's funny that you should mention this, really cognizant of is that for Mother's Day, we push 
steaks and meat and Love lots of great sales just as heavily, if not more so than Father's Day. Awesome. That so I awesome. want to bring women into this conversation because I do mm-hmm. think that some of the hormonal issues we're seeing from the rise of PCOS to just what symptomology around our hormones has become common, but is definitely not normal. Mm-hmm. And I think that meat and organ meat especially can play a really big role in helping to adjust this and in lifting weights. Yeah, you are a hundred percent correct. And again, like your listeners may not be, because obviously the fact that they're listening to your podcast means that there may be like a special group of people, but, you know, going back to the marketing thing, like, you know, just recently I went on a rant about Kim Kardashian being the new face of beyond Meat. Yes. Okay. Right. So like yes. we, we could go off, we don't even need to, but the point is they are marketing to women. Because men are not particularly interested in what Kim Kardashian is eating, but a lot of women are. And that's a blatant display of manipulation where it's like, first of all, she didn't even eat any of the food in this commercial, which I find hilarious, but she's this beauty ideal. She's this person that so many women look up to and want to look like, want to be like, want to, you know, live that life. And if she's saying this is the right kind of food to eat, women are going to listen. Listening. Yeah. Yeah. They're paying so, her for a reason. How much do you think that, I mean, how much, like, does this woman need more money? Like no. <laughs> how much must they be paying her over to, seven to, figures? Oh my goodness. Anyway, I'm sure of it. Yeah. And I think, I think you and I can probably talk about this for a long time because it's just such a, it's such a point of frustration and it, I find it infuriating. Yeah. But I do want to focus on the positive, which is, you know, you are out there helping women exercise and eat right for their physiological and hormonal needs. And Mm -hmm. so I was wondering if you could just give us a snapshot. I know that you're the post that you mentioned, you talked about doing a new coaching program for coaches to -hmm. help with women specifically from a nutritional and an exercise perspective to care for their physiology and their hormones. And so for anybody Mm -hmm. listening, wondering if you have just like a couple of quick actionable ideas in terms of that. Sure. I mean, some actionable, some shameless actionable ideas is to take the course. So I do have, (laughs) absolutely. just so folks know, and you can reach out to me if you want more information, but I've created two programs and one is the muscle science for women program that is direct for women. So if women are looking to connect with us and learn more about how to build strength and nourish your body and fuel and recover properly and all those things. A couple times a year, we relaunch this program so that you can do it sort of like in real time with us. That's one thing. As of probably when this podcast goes live, I've created and helped launch with Primal Health Institute. This was created by Mark Sisson, kind of the godfather of ancestral health, primal health. With their coaching institute, I've created another program that is for coaches who coach women. So it's like one step removed, but it's helping educate coaches, men and women of all backgrounds, how to better support their female clients. So this, I think, is really important because, again, it's just we've been left out of 
the research. We've been left out of all of the kind of like methodologies and stuff. It's always about men, the avatar is a man, and then we sort of extrapolate that data to women and then we wonder why it doesn't work, right? Because Um, women are hard to research because we have this cyclical monthly hormonal outlay. And I think that that has to change, but I think that has been the paradigm in the sort of peer-reviewed scientific journal literature is that it's a little bit more difficult. But that goes back to this idea of like different and different being bad and less than, because again, it's like, maybe we have a bit more complexity in terms of, of research and, and data gathering because we have this more complex hormonal system. But like, that doesn't mean that you just say like, ah, well, whatever to half the population, you're too complicated. So like, we don't actually really value, you know, your ability to be healthy. We're just going to be like, yeah, just kind of you wing it. You know, like, I don't think that would happen with men. So that's why we're trying to change this. We're trying to like get more research, get more data, get more information and apply this stuff and teach everybody because the more everyone knows, like every male out there has a woman in their life whose health they care about. A lot of male coaches are working with female clients. Like this stuff is important. So anyway, not to belabor that point, all of the, that stuff is available and you can reach out to me if you're interested. But and we'll have, we'll I, have links for all of that in the show notes too. Awesome. Awesome. But I mean, really high level there are a couple big sort of factors that I think everyone needs to just take into account when they are trying to build strength, be healthy, be resilient. And a lot of these things are the same for men and women, but we have been taught that they're different. So there's like two interesting buckets. There's areas where women are different than men and we haven't addressed it because it's too complicated. And then there are areas where men and women are the same and we've been taught that they're not. So you talk about this protein equation, right? Where men and women, we have the same muscle tissue, We build it the same way. Women don't need higher reps and lower weights. We don't need Pilates. Men don't need more red meat than women. We're the same. Our muscle tissue is the same. But marketing and propaganda teaches us that men need meat and heavy weights and women need plant-based and whatever, you know? So it's interesting because there's like the two sides of this coin where we are more similar than we are different, but where we're different is interesting and unique and deserves to be looked at and addressed. So that's sort of like the big framework. I love that. Right. And, but there's, there's a lot of, you know, complexities in terms of, you know, again, like our hormonal, our hormonal cycles, not only from a monthly perspective, but also throughout our phase of life. So reproductive years, pre-menopause, post-menopause, all of those things, we're going to have maybe different protein requirements, We're going to have different challenges if we are, again, either trying to build muscle tissue, build a human being, you know, offset the risk of sarcopenia and muscle wasting and bone density loss and all of those things. Overarching message there really is just that protein is very important. You should probably be eating more of it. And that as you age, your requirement for protein may actually go up. A lot of people think like, okay, you know, if I'm going into my fifties and sixties, I'm not like maybe super competitive anymore. I'm not trying to like build muscle. I can kind of ease it on the protein. That's actually not the case because we continue to require these essential amino acids to maintain our uh, skeletal muscle that helps us avoid injury and be healthy. And our ability to kind of take in and use those amino acids is reduced as we get older. So we actually need kind of more of it to thrive and make the best use of the food that we're taking in. Protein, just always important. Load-bearing exercise, strength training, always important, no matter what phase you're at. 
And we can talk a lot about how, you know, our unique hormonal profile can actually make us can recover more quickly than men. We can work at higher volumes than men. It's not all bad. That's the other thing. Like we're so used to being told like women's sex hormones. It's like what makes us gain weight and get emotional. And it's like, it gives us PMS and all stuff. Like we always hear all the bad news, but all of these sex hormones are beautiful and important and help us thrive and be happy, healthy human beings. And it's really just about optimizing them at every stage. And we even talk about, like, we'll get into details about how women may be more susceptible to like sleep loss issues for hormonal reasons, for um, practical reasons. Like we may be under eating, like we may be the primary caregiver for a child. How do we work around the fact that our sleep is garbage during certain points of our life? Um, <laughs> We focus a lot on recovery and how absolutely crucial that is and how it is one of the most undervalued aspects of strength training. You know, again, in North America, certainly, but we live in a culture that really prizes the grind and like working yes. hard and like you'll stop when you're done and you'll quit when you're dead and all of this stuff. And it's cute marketing, but again, that does not support a resilient, strong person. And so often, and I see it time and time again with female clients because they're trying to do it all. Chances are they have a full-time job. Maybe they have children, they have dependents, they have a busy life. They're crushing it at the gym. And then they wonder why their hormones are messed up, why they're having performance plateaus, why they're, you know, they're gaining weight when they're eating less, all of these things. It's because recovery is when you build back stronger. When you are beasting yourself at the gym, you are actually breaking your body down. The recovery is the necessary part that comes after training that allows your body to repair and build back stronger. And we forget that part. We do the hard work part and then we wake up the next day and we do it again. And we wonder why we're not getting the results we want. It's just, I'm really passionate about it because I feel like it's like almost people have to hit their breaking point before they realize like, Actually, in some cases, less is more and it will get you the result you want faster. You just have to, you just have to embrace it. Um, So anyway, again, I could go on, but those are some kind of key points that we talk about in these programs. I think that's fantastic. And I'm, I'm excited to get a link to those programs as well as you have like a pull-up program. So that month-long journey to get to that pull-up space, which I think again is looking at women's unique physiology and how we, how we work with upper body as women. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, I think that you're a gem for really having all of these things. And, and Thank you. you hit on something at the end too, that I think is really important, which sometimes less is more. And I think that there is this uniquely American mentality that more is always better. And mm-hmm. I think this is something that we have to overcome in a lot of different arenas, everything from mm-hmm. strength training to how we everything. everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's good to hear that reiterated as well as to hear the importance of recovery and looking at, what we're doing in a day in a culture that is asking us to constantly be producing something. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, again, when that's the culture you are brought up in and when we also have a very human natural tendency to compare ourselves and maybe we're going on social media and we're seeing people getting after it every day. And we're like, okay, well now my off day makes me feel a little bit lazy or whatever, but it's also important. And I like ask this question over and over again to myself and to my clients when they're talking about how hard they're working or how strictly they're eating or all of these things. 
the question you want to keep asking yourself is to what end? Like for what purpose, you know, because I have people who are coming to me and they're saying, I figured out this way of eating and I, I feel good and I, I've, I'm doing strength training and it's great, but I really want to weigh this many pounds. I just really want to, what do I do to weigh this many pounds? And I, I really want to ask people because it's not my place to say whether your goal is right or not, but why, to what end, like what will happen for you? when you weigh this arbitrary number on the scale that no one else knows or cares about, that means nothing to anybody but you. If that means, if weighing this arbitrary amount means that all that strength you just built, that diet and lifestyle that you've achieved is going to have to be completely uprooted because we all know that, you know, especially when we're talking about like body composition and weight loss goals, the sacrifices you have to make sometimes to hit these like temporary, whatever arbitrary goals are, are really intense. And so it's like, it's hard because in some ways, and again, in our culture, it's like, we're telling people like, you have to settle for like, not really being that ideal body type that you want or whatever, but it's really like, what does success mean to you? Does success mean that you will have a six pack and that you will get, you will look a certain way when you post a picture online or does success mean that you feel nourished when you eat and you feel healthy and you sleep well and you have energy and you enjoy your life? Like what does success mean? And again, I feel like we we've created this like fake narrative that we have to have it all, that we have to eat the way we want, have perfect energy, have zero visible body fat, like, you know, and it just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Like you have to, there's always checks and balances and compromise you're making in your life and keeping in mind what the end goal is, which I hope is health and happiness over just yes. like looking a certain way. Right. Cause you know, I've done all, I've been a competitive bodybuilder. I've done a lot of this like kind of more extreme body composition stuff. And it's been interesting and it was all very experimental for me. And I learned a lot, but I also learned that like a six pack does not change your life. It doesn't improve your life. It doesn't make you love yourself if you don't. And anybody who has been in that space and is being honest will tell you the same that, you know, finding what makes you happy and healthy is always going to be a bigger payoff than looking perfect in a bathing suit, whatever that means. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I think those are really, that's important medicine. And I think it's something that we all need to hear in this culture of comparison and this online facade that everybody has it all because that's, that's all that they post. Mm -hmm. And I have that same drive. My husband and I talk a lot about how do we deepen our, our happiness and our joy and to make that the goal and to make health a goal too. And that actually dovetails into, you know, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but one of the things I think you do so beautifully is you're helping women build a health span mm. and where we're more at risk for sarcopenia, for losing muscle, you know, up to half a percent to a percent per year, starting in your mid thirties and sort of accelerating as we age. I think that eating meat and resistance strength training are two of the most important things for building a health span that doesn't have to do with a six pack right now, but has yeah. to do with a functional body for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And, mm -hmm. and my husband and I talk a lot about that's a good benchmark. Like I want to be riding horses in my eighties and yeah that is more important than having, you know, the perfectly posed bikini photo right now. 
And I mean, the good news too, is that if you are pursuing your optimal version of health and nourishment, like you're going to look good too. Like that is a bonus. Like when you are your optimized, healthy self, you are going to glow and feel good in your body and look good. And it's going to look different on all of us. And that's okay too. Right. So, you know, it's a great side effect. And like, that's what I try to, it may be naive, but that's what I really try to like orient my my clients is like, it's okay to want to look good and it's okay to have aesthetic goals because we're human beings. And like, that's always going to be a part of it. But if we can try to prioritize and focus on non-aesthetic goals and have the aesthetic stuff sort of be the bonus, the side effects, Mm -hmm. that's ideal because it's ultimately just more rewarding and more empowering to like build strength, learn a skill, understand how to cook and nourish yourself. All of those things are going to have much more like deep and far reaching positive impact than just like getting to a place where you look really good for a while, you know? So yeah, it's not easy, but that's the goal. I love that. And I love, I love this idea of, I, I don't know what to call them, but prioritizing feel good goals over mm-hmm. aesthetic goals. Looks good. Yeah. yeah. Look good goals. Yeah. 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 And I think that's great. And it's a transition. One of the things I really want to talk to you about is you've just had a child. I think Magnus is one. Am I right? Is it right He's going to be one very soon. And I'm okay. having a lot of emotions about it. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. I really want to transition into how we nourish the next generation. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that with you, especially talking about preconception and pregnancy and this sort of shifting paradigm. I think that there has been a lot of the prevailing narrative of what to eat in pregnancy. And Hmm. I think that when we're coming at it from this carnivore-ish and nutrient dense standpoint, there is a lot to be gained in terms of feeling good throughout this process. And then beginning to impart that to our, our kids as we start them on more foods. And I, I wanted to just talk with you about that a little bit. I know that you're not an expert in this space, but sometimes I think that the best experts are those that are going through it. Yeah. Like living it. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, you know, I am like the first person to say, of course, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not an expert in, you know, pregnancy, nutrition, or postpartum or anything like that. But I obviously have a little bit of experience and I have some feelings about it. And I do think (laughs) that like, for example, somebody that I am always recommending, and I don't know if you are connected with her, I'd be happy to connect you to Dr. Lily Nichols, who is great. I would love to be connected to her. Well, I will do it. Like you should definitely have her on the podcast. She's fantastic. And she is like the person to go to for a resource for nutrition during pregnancy. And then there's of course other resources for nourishing your baby too, but we can talk about that, but she's great. Dr. Lily Nichols. And she advocates as do I a whole foods, higher protein, nutrient dense diet for if you are trying to conceive, if you are pregnant postpartum, because I mean, it's pretty common sense that there is no point in a human being's life where nourishment matters more than when you are growing a human and trying to maintain your own health so that you can grow a human. Like it's nuts. It's a crazy that baby takes 
your body prioritizes the baby over your own body. And I think that this is, I mean, this is the miracle of growing humans, but this is also something to really consider. I mean, even in the third trimester, you transfer almost all of your storage copper, something that we tend to be low on anyway, into baby. And your body is going to preferably transfer B12 and all of these trace minerals Mm -hmm. to your baby. And so we have to take care of that time. Absolutely. And, you know, again, going back to the the organ meat argument, like people historically, I guess, and again, in like the Western culture, we've been very afraid and rightly so. Like, I understand I was there, how scary it can be to like think about eating a food that could be risky to your baby, right? Of course, there's so much fear involved in that. And so there's some of these sort of more outdated ideas around what's appropriate to eat, things like don't eat sushi, right? Because maybe it carries parasite and that could be really problematic for your baby. Don't eat liver because it's really high in vitamin A. And like, if you get vitamin A toxicity, that's a super bad thing. And again, you know, use your own discretion. I'm not a doctor. I'm not telling you what to do. However, we know now that in like more modern updated times, things like runny eggs or sushi, the food safety is much higher now than maybe it was when these rules first came about. And when you look like culturally, do you think that women in Japan like switch over to eating like ice cream and sandwiches when they're pregnant because sushi is suddenly unsafe? I mean, if you feel, if you're getting these foods from high quality sources and you feel comfortable, the risk of those being problematic to you or your growing baby is very low. And these are nutrient dense foods. It's the same with liver. Like I got questions like, Oh, are you eating less meat and liver now because you're pregnant? I'm like, absolutely not. I am eating the same foods that are nourishing and nutrient dense for myself. And I need them even more now because again, I'm creating another person and (laughs) that's it. And so, you know, I ate a lot of the things that people historically told you not to eat. So sushi and liver and eggs and all of those things. And I also, I listened to my body and I ate a lot more carbs. You know, I needed more energy. I was doing a lot of work and I felt zero guilt about it. I ate foods that my body wanted me to eat. I ate a lot more fruit, like normally, you know, in normal times, I'm not a huge fruit person and my body was telling me to eat fruit for whatever reason. Maybe I need some vitamin C or fiber or just liquid because I was always dehydrated, whatever. What my body told me to eat, I ate and I feel good about it. And, you know, postpartum, it was the same thing. It's just like your body, it's so incredible. And anybody who's been through it, it's wild what your body is doing. It's the, it's the most like extreme, like growth change that a human body undergoes, right? Is when you're growing and birthing and healing from having a baby. And so it's just nourishment. Like I I had people reaching out to me saying like, how do I optimize my pregnancy while I'm fasting and while I'm eating keto and all of those things. And like, look, I am never going to tell you that's a good idea. Maybe for some people you can get away with it. But like, if there's one time in your life, like eat some healthy carbs, eat food. Don't worry about, again, to what end? Like, why do you need to to fast while you're pregnant? Like so that you can tell people that you fasted while you're pregnant. Just, you got to just do what nourishes your body. And Anyway, I mean, I can, I can talk about the baby stuff next, but if you have any other specific questions. Well, and leaning into intuition, and this is something that I've, I've talked about with my friends that have recently been or currently pregnant, is that we have to tap back into that intuitive 
listening to your body. Your body has a lot of innate wisdom that can be tapped into. And I think that your intuition is actually heightened during this time of pregnancy. And there's this aspect of being initiated into a deeper knowing and Mm. to be able to listen to that. I need fruit or I need more carbs, or I'm really craving these oysters or this liver. That was another thing I ate. Yep. That people would probably say you should eat. (laughs) You're right. You're right. I mean, we've all experienced cravings. We all know what it's like when, and you know, oftentimes people are like, oh, well, but what if I crave junk food all the time? Again, it's like this kind of paying attention that if you are constantly craving, I don't know, something that you consider processed junk food, maybe it's because you are actually craving carbs. Maybe you need more fats. Like maybe if you're craving ice cream, maybe you're looking for calcium and, and vitamin D and again, carbs, right? So, and not to say that you can never eat these foods that you enjoy, again, not a dogmatic person, but pay attention to what those signals are really telling you. And I would, I would agree with what you said that there is probably no, no other time when you are so strongly being given these signals and it's our job to, to listen to them, right? Absolutely. And I think there is this aspect of separating signal from noise. And I think as the majority of us didn't grow up eating these nutrient dense foods and all of these great minerals and bioavailable nutrients in the whole food matrix. And I think that this is important too, when you look at vitamin A toxicity, like reading it within the whole food matrix, you're not taking a supplement. Um, That's right. But I think that's right there's this aspect of, I don't even know if we know what to crave anymore, you know? And so, so ice cream might be a stand in for something else that we haven't been eating for our lives and don't have that sort of Rolodex response of like, Oh, maybe what I'm really craving here is oysters because my body needs zinc and copper. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's why, again, like a lot of the advice that I will give to people is so general across the board because it, it works for everyone across the board. And that is to just sort of always start with protein, ideally animal protein to always prioritize protein and healthy fats. Because if you are doing that the majority of the time, you probably aren't going to have as many cravings. You don't have to decipher all that stuff because you are getting what your body needs. And again, I had some cravings during pregnancy for sure, but I never like people are like, Oh, are you, do you have like meat aversions? And are you craving like pickles and weird stuff. And I'm like, not really like, cause I'm, I really was like just getting as much nutrition in as I could. Mm-hmm. And so my body didn't have to cry out so strongly. Yeah. Right. And so I think that again, I, I tell everybody, I'm like, how do I, you know, when people are like, how do I stop having cravings? How do I stop snacking between meals? How do I, I'm not hungry, but I know I need to eat. What do I do? I'm like protein first eat the protein, add some healthy yes. fat, yes. maybe eat a fattier cut of meat, maybe add some avocado, add some olive oil, just protein and fat, and then fill in the blanks with whatever else you need as per your goals and your preferences and your, your interests and all of those things. But if you start with that first and like, if you are a snacker and you want to stop doing that for whatever reason, it's like, I I joked about this, but I, I think it's good advice. It's like, if you're not hungry enough to eat a steak, you're probably not hungry. If you're not hungry enough to eat protein, because of course we can always find room for sweets or carbs or whatever, because they're hyper palatable. It's delicious. And we are always going to want to eat that. But if you are like, Oh, I'm bored or I'm whatever. And I kind of want to eat something and I'm feeling snacky. And the only thing there is like a chicken thigh or some ground beef or chicken liver mousse or something. And you're like, no, no, I don't want to eat that. You're probably not that hungry. Like maybe go have a glass of water, go for a walk or something. But yeah, it's just prioritize protein 
and fat love that. and, and the cravings may not be such an issue. I agree. I mean, that's how we eat at home. And I think that's great. And I also think it's, it's a good transition into this question of, so now that you have an almost one-year-old and you are entering the world of feeding him, how do we get the next generation hooked on these nutrient dense foods? And how have you incorporated all those good fats and proteins and even organ mates into your son's diet? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I'm going to tell anybody anything revolutionary here, but I just think it's, it's good stuff to sort of remember and knowing that we are all bio-individual, knowing that children go through, I think, natural progressions where they be, they may be more or less adventurous or picky or willing yes. to do things and all of that stuff. And some of it is like individual. And I've been lucky so far that Magnus is a voracious eater and he will eat most things. So, you know, some of, some of this I think is, is my hard work and some of it is pure luck. We'll see, like, I'll let you know when he's a toddler and like a complete nightmare. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but basically my approach has always been that I'm going to feed him what I'm eating and I'm going to try everything. I want him to have access to a wide range of flavors and textures and just play with things and also not to attribute too much stress or failure with, okay, today, you know, yesterday he loved liver today. He's not touching it yesterday. He ate broccoli. My goodness. Today he's throwing it on the floor. You know, it's a process. We all have different cravings and moods. Um, yeah. And that kids are resilient and, you know, knowing what we know about nutrition now, like I think about maybe previous generations, it's like sit at the table until it's dark outside to eat your vegetables. And it's like, or just, you know, they'll survive. If they don't want to eat, they'll eat next yeah. time. And you know, their little bodies are wise too. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like they're, they are very intuitive eaters and they'll eat yeah. enough and not too much. And they'll eat the things that they feel like eating and you know, and just kind of, again, having this patience, having this sense of like experimentation and openness the same way you would with trying your own foods. And yeah, I mean, I've given him liver, I've given him bone marrow, I've given him, he eats cod liver, all the things that, that we eat. And I, and again, it's like, and this isn't a, a judgment thing at all, but I think that one of the other things we've been taught is that children eat kids food and adults eat adult food. And so, you know, I've seen over generations and different people in my life and stuff who have like their kids food that they pair and then they prepare their food because it's just a foregone conclusion that kids want to eat the beige food and they want to eat French fries and like, they're not going to eat this fish and broccoli that we're eating or whatever. It's like, of course they're not. Like I would choose French fries over broccoli. Like I'm not I'm not anything special. Like when you eat hyperpalatable food, you want to eat more hyperpalatable food. Exactly. And so I understand that we're in a real world where like one day my kid's going to go out and eat birthday cake and he's going to eat other stuff, other places. But the way that our brains work is if we have this stuff around and we have it in front of us, we're always going to choose it. I'm no different than anybody else. If I have chips and cookies in my house, I'm going to eat it. So I will choose meaningfully and mindfully to eat those things when I want to, but I'm going to have healthy, good, nourishing food around because then I'll eat it. And so that's sort of the approach we're having with Magnus, where it's like for the first couple of years of his life, he's not going to know how delicious cupcakes are because we don't have them in the house. And like, why Absolutely. would we feed him a cupcake and then expect him to eat 
chicken liver later. Like that's crazy, you know? So anyway, I mean, it's still a work in progress. Like I said, I'm, I'm figuring things out every day, but it's been, it's been fun and it's been cool to watch him. And again, he has such a preference for protein that it's like, I know this is instinctive and natural, but I'm also kind of proud of him. I'm like, yeah, go for it kid. Cause like, yeah, I, I put a spread in front of him. He just goes for that protein first. He just loves it. So it's been really cool. I think one of the things I love hearing from you, number one, is how you approach things with such an open curiosity and that this is fun. I mean, and then throughout this interview, I think that's been really apparent. And I think that's really a beautiful approach with kids too, because I'm always thinking about how we can cultivate curiosity in ourselves as adults, but also in the next generation, because I think it's an important it's an important little nugget. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not to say that it's not ever stressful. Like I know some people who are like, look, I don't have time to like make all this fancy food. And sometimes they're freaking out and screaming and I'm going to give them what I need to give them. I understand we're all in like different places. I have days where I'm like, Oh my God, is this my life? Like this kid is I'm covered in food, whatever. Like it's, it can be stressful. It can be a lot, but like you said, we we're all in this life. We all have to eat and nourish and take care of others and try to be as healthy, happy as possible. So with the things that are inevitable, with these meals every day, with this taking care of our children, whatever, we got to try to find a way to make it as enjoyable and exciting and adventurous as possible because we're in it one way or the other. So like, let's try to look at it as positively as we can, because that's what life is. And, you know, we want to try to have a good time. I love that. I, th- I mean, that that was a beautiful uh, way to just sort of bring that all together. And I know that we're we're running out of time. Is there anything that you really want to talk about that I've missed? Oh, I mean, I, I have a feeling you and I could kind of talk forever, but I think um, so. you know, you're very good at this, Kate. I have to say. Um, and oh, I thank you, thank I you. That appreciate... means a lot coming from you. You you no. you've been doing this a long time. Yeah, probably too long, but it's, and it's so fun to like connect and meet people this way. But I think that the work that you're doing is super important. It's very cool. I would love to reciprocate and kind of have you on and we can talk about butchery and and all things meat at another time. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, the basic message again is just sort of like when it comes to food and, and wellness, it's like trying to keep this sort of open mind and sense of adventure and sense of fun is, is super important. And the rest is kind of just details. But yeah, that's pretty much it. I have this question that I ask everyone, and I think you might've just answered it, but what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? And that can just be within yourself, your family unit, or for generations to come. I mean, it can be as scalable as you want. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked about it. I think it's, it's try to, you know, take care of yourself first, live by example, do the things that work for you, worry less about what other people think, worry less about trying to fix problems and just try to take care of yourself and show that sort of positivity and health and resilience through your own actions. And that will have a ripple effect. It does. It has a better effect than going out there, you know, guns blazing, trying to trying to make change, you know, and have fun with it. Cause that's, you know, all we can hope for. Yeah. I could not agree more. And I want to thank you. Um, I know I touched on this earlier, but I want to thank you for helping people help themselves, that all of your work has this thread of building agency. And I think that that's so important in both the strength training and fitness and food worlds. But I also think it's really important for women that we build this sense of empowered agency and you've done such a good job doing that. And so I just want to thank you. Thanks, Kate. I appreciate that. 
Yeah. Thank um, you. Where can people find you? And we'll have links to all of this in the show notes too, but yeah, I mean, the best place right now, if you want to like say hi or ask a question is Instagram. I know that's a very flawed place to be, but it's where I am. So you can reach me out too. to me on Instagram. My handle is the muscle maven and I have a website, which is just my name. It's ashleyvanhouten.com. And you can find all information about my coaching and programs and books and everything there. And then the two books, it takes guts and carnivorous. You can just buy wherever you buy good books. Yes. And we'll have links to that as well. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me. And I just, I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to talk to you more in the future. Absolutely. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.